Please turn with me in your Bibles to Romans chapter 14, verses 1 through 9. This is the passage which Pastor John will preach from. It's on page 988 of your pew Bible if you don't have your own. Romans 14, 1 through 9. As for the man who is weak in faith, welcome him, but not for disputes over opinions. One believes he may eat anything, while the weak man eats only vegetables. Let not him who eats despise him who abstains, and let not him who abstains pass judgment on him who eats, for God has welcomed him. Who are you to pass judgment on the servant of another? It is before his own master that he stands or falls, and he will be upheld, for the master is able to make him stand. One man esteems one day as better than another, while another man esteems all days alike. Let everyone be fully convinced in his own mind. He who observes the day observes it in honor of the Lord. He also who eats, eats in the honor of the Lord, since he gives thanks to God, while he who abstains abstains in honor of the Lord and gives thanks to God. None of us lives to himself, and none of us dies to himself. If we live, we live to the Lord, and if we die, we die to the Lord. So then, whether we live or whether we die, we are the Lord's. For to this end Christ died and lived again, that he might be Lord both of the dead and of the living. Last Sunday night, Ralph Winter sat at my kitchen table and looked out the window over the cityscape of Minneapolis and he said something that just lodged itself uh, probably forever in my mind and... uh, It is the seed out of which this message has grown. And I'll tell you what he said in a few minutes. What I want to do, try to do this morning, is talk about the relationship between frontier missions and domestic ministries. Let me define those two terms and and explain the tension that I see. Frontier missions is the effort of the church to penetrate with the gospel an unreached people in order to establish an indigenous church which will apply the love and justice of Christ to that culture. And domestic ministries are the effort of the church to apply the justice and the love of Christ to its own culture. And I'm assuming that neither of those gets to first base if the salvation of individuals through faith in Jesus is not a high priority. Now the question is, especially coming off of a a week of emphasis on frontier missions, how are those two things related? Or let me state the question a little differently. Since missions and ministries are only the work of individuals, whether together or separately, and since individuals are amazingly diversified, how does 
an emphasis like last week on frontier missions relate to this huge diversity of personalities, abilities, callings, and ministries that 750 regular worshipers at Bethlehem have. Or let me make the question one more step complex. If you want to consider frontier missions and domestic ministries, you have to realize that frontier missions is a complex thing. Besides the Baptist General Conference Board of World Missions, there are 3,000 mission agencies in the world. Immense diversity just on that side. Now, I don't want to get diverted here too far, but I am going to take a, a detour, put in a parenthesis here. What's the relationship between our commitment at Bethlehem to the Baptist General Conference World Mission Enterprise and the wider evangelical world mission enterprise? Three statements to sum up my position. One, God willing, Bethlehem will become an increasingly strong support and influence for the Baptist General Conference Board of World Missions and the cause of world missions through the conference. Statement number two, Bethlehem's influence for the cause of world missions will continue to grow beyond the Baptist General Conference. And statement number three, the latter is crucial for the former. That is, just like in your own families. If your heart is large enough and strong enough to care about some people beyond your little household, it's good for your household. Your children go up in a family where they are the only thing you care about. It's bad for them. And it's good for them if your heart is big enough to embrace larger people, fields, concerns. We began our mission week last week with a veteran BGC mission statesman, Virgil Olson. We concluded our missions week with a veteran mission statesman who has no denominational ties in his present ministry. He's a sort of a freelance, free spirit over the U.S. Center for World Mission, Ralph Winter. And in doing that, we said those are our commitments. We are committed to the Baptist General Conference World Mission Enterprise. We are committed to the larger evangelical cause of world missions beyond the Baptist General Conference. And we're committed to the fact that these are not in competition. They are mutually helpful. Take the United States Center for World Mission, for example. This institution is not a mission agency and stands in competition with no agency. If it falters and falls due to financial collapse, we suffer in the Baptist General Conference. And therefore, my prayer and hope is that, Be that Bethlehem will be one of the strategic support churches to spread the vision for that institution. It'll never be on anybody's budget. That's a policy. They want a one-time gift from an individual of 1695 and no more. They want a vision to spread to a million evangelicals and then everything's paid for and everybody else is funded just like missionaries there. They have no ongoing budget. 
So there is no competition. I hope that we can rally around this great world impacting institution and keep it afloat. In the meantime, Bethlehem in the last four years has tripled its giving to the Baptist General Conference. We were the seventh largest giver to the BGC out of 800 churches last year. In the last year, four of our most promising young people went to the field with the BGC, Japan and Philippines, to stay for at least a year. And they're there now. Not sun in the, fun in the sun, two-week vacations, but work and assistance to our missionaries in the BGC. And last week, the Board of Foreign Missions called me and asked me, the pastor of Bethlehem, to be the speaker at the annual retreat for the returning and the departing missionaries of the BGC next July. It baffles me that some of you are concerned that we have no impact on the BGC or that you think we're moving in the other direction. What can I say? What more can we do? Unless you believe that we should only stick to our family, in which case... We'll disagree. These are our three commitments. We will become an increasingly powerful influence in the Baptist General Conference World Mission Enterprise. And we will become an increasingly significant influence in the evangelical cause of world missions beyond the BGC. Commitment number three, these will not be in competition. They will be mutually strengthening and helpful. Now, I don't want to talk about that this morning. That's not my point. I want to talk about how do our commitments to frontier missions, whatever they are, and domestic ministries relate to each other. That's the big issue for me this morning. And I want to draw some principles from Romans 14. So if you want to look at this, we'll draw out some principles and then we'll describe the situation I see at the church and then we'll see if we can apply them to the church and to your individual life. First of all, let's notice that there are three disagreements at Rome. Three areas of diversity. Number one. Some people think they should eat only vegetables and some people think they can eat anything, including probably meat offered to idols and probably some of the foods that were forbidden in the Old Testament. Look at verse 2. One believes he may eat anything while the weak man eats only vegetables. That's disagreement number one. Number two, some people feel they have to keep certain holy days in certain ways, probably the holy days of the Old Testament Ritual, And other people say, all days are holy in Christ. We don't need to keep those days like that. Look at verse 5. One man esteems one day as better than another, while another man esteems all days alike. Second disagreement and diversity. Third, this issue of wine drinking. Look at verses 20 and 21. Everything is indeed clean, but it is wrong for anyone to make others fall by what he eats. It is right not to eat meat or drink wine or do anything that makes your brother stumble. Meat eating, wine drinking, day keeping, all points of conflict in the church and disagreement 
at Rome. And Paul is writing this chapter to help them live with it, not overcome it. So here are my five principles. Number one, diversity is here to stay. The reason I say it's here to stay is because Paul doesn't make any statements here about overcoming the disagreements. He simply gives them guidelines for how to live with it. He does not obliterate it. I can't find any attempt to. Second, not all diversity in the church has to be talked about in right and wrong, good and evil, black and white. There's a spectrum of acceptability to God on disagreements like these. Now, it's true, you'll notice, that he does speak in terms of weak and strong. But he refuses to deal with the tensions at Rome the way he dealt with them at Galatia. In Galatia, he just pulled out both guns and he shot people theologically because saving faith was at stake. A Judaizer is a false gospeler and is accursed. That's the way he talked in Galatia. You don't have any of that here. Why? Because, as you read it, you discover he believes that on both sides of the issue, it's coming from faith. Look at verse 22 and 23, especially verse 23. He who has doubts is condemned if he eats, because he does not act from faith. For whatever does not come from faith is sin. So Paul still believes in sin, but when he sees an eater and a non-eater, a holy day keeper and a non-holy day keeper. He doesn't say sin, not sin. He, d- he refuses to do that. He says, if they're both coming from faith, I'm not going to call them sin. I'm not going to call them evil. So let's not use only categories of good and evil when we talk about our differences. Third, We must not, therefore, despise or condemn our brothers and sisters who sense the leading of God differently than we in areas where the word of God is not decisive. Look at verse 3. Let not him who eats despise him who abstains. And let not him who abstains pass judgment on him who eats. For God has welcomed him. Who are you to pass judgment on the servant of another? It's before his own master that he stands or falls. So, there are many times when you and I and you and and you are going to choose differently about a strategy of ministry or about habits uh, of food and drink and ministry and so on. And we ought not to condemn or despise each other, but rather trust the master to deal with his servant appropriately. Number four. Principle number four. Everyone should go hard after God to make sure that he or she is persuaded deep down that what you're doing is right. God does not want people immobilized by indecision. He doesn't want us to waffle back and forth between, oh, maybe I should do this, and maybe I should do this, and maybe I should do this, and you just stay right where you are, immobilized by indecision. Look at verse 5. One man esteems one day as better than another, while another man esteems all days alike. And then here comes the key sentence. Let everyone be fully convinced in his own mind. Notice what he does not say. 
He doesn't say, now watch out you people who are weak in faith, lest your weak faith prompt you to do something less than perfect. He doesn't talk like that to the weak faith. He says, I know you're going to sometimes choose differently from each other, but by all means, be confident in what you choose, that it's the will of God. Evidently, indecisiveness is a bad thing for Paul. And he gives us a clue why it's a bad thing over in verses 22 and 23. He says, the faith that you have, keep between yourself and God happy. Look at this. Happy is he who has no reason to judge himself for what he approves. That simply means people with clear consciences are happy people. And people with guilty consciences are miserable. And you lay yourself open to a guilty conscience when you waffle. Oh, maybe this, maybe that, maybe this. And you're a prime target for guilt when you do that. You can hardly escape guilt. Now, Steve's so wise, Steve's so wise, usually so, prayed before we came in here, picked up from the sermon in the first hour. He prayed something I, I didn't include, which I'm going to include because it's so good. That you wouldn't feel guilty this morning for being indecisive. <laughs> it's kind of a no-win situation. And, and what he, the insight that he had was that coming to conviction is a process. And, and you need to give yourself some leeway here to, to nail down some of your convictions. And I don't know how long that should be. Probably not too long. Because you're just such a prime target. And I feel myself waffling on a lot of things right now, like where we should go as a church. Build, not build, that sort of thing. And this sermon has great relevance for me in that issue and those disagreements that will arise in our midst when we try to make decisions about the future. I don't want to be wishy-washy and indecisive about where we're going because then I'm a prime target for guilt and I'll talk in a minute about some terrible results of that. Final principle, number five. Do everything you do, once you're convinced that it's for God's will, do everything you do for the honor of Christ and with a heart full of thanksgiving. Look at verse six. He who observes the day, observes it in honor of the Lord. Also he who eats, eats in honor of the Lord, since he gives thanks to God. While he who abstains, abstains in honor of the Lord and gives thanks to God. There's a range of mutually exclusive decisions that are acceptable as obedience to God. That's freeing in the church. So when we sit down in the fellowship hall and I sit beside you and I won't eat, I won't drink coffee, yuck. And you sit down beside me and, and you drink coffee, we don't have to say, dummy, or addict, or uh, fool, you miss out on the best things in life. We just don't have to talk like that. We, we can not drink to the honor of Christ, and we can drink to the honor of Christ. Isn't that amazing? Two opposite things. Done from faith, for the glory of God, and Paul says, it's all right. Don't try to get everybody off or on coffee. Summary. Number one, diversity is here to stay. Number two, let's not always talk about these diversities in terms of evil and good. 
Number three, don't despise or condemn one another when you choose differently. Number four, be persuaded. Think about whether you should drink coffee or shouldn't drink coffee in a Swedish setting. And fifth, do whatever you do to the honor of Christ for His glory. Now let's step back from the text for a moment and get in view the situation at Bethlehem because I'm not going to apply this to food. I'm going to apply it to ministry. We have just come through a week of focus on frontier missions and some people say during missions week, I didn't hear anybody say it here, and you've never heard it come out of this pulpit in the last four years, that missions is the ultimate goal of the church. I don't believe it. The ultimate goal of the church is to display and to reflect the glory and the worth of God. Missions is a means, not an end. The reason missions exist is because worship and obedience doesn't. In the age to come, there will be no missions. It will fail and disappear entirely. But there will remain worship, obedience, fellowship, praise, and all manner of good deeds will abide. Those are our goals. Missions is a stop-gap means for a fallen world to get to where it ought to be. It is not our ultimate goal. Now, that raises the question, well, are there not then other means to glorify God than frontier missions? Indeed, there are as many as there are people, I think, Let's get some of these out on the table. I want you to feel the force of diversity that exists among us. If, if your heart is gripped by the love of Christ and your sense of justice is informed by the will of God, then there are innumerable ways for this love and this justice to go to work transforming our sick culture. And the crucial goal of glorifying God through the transforming of people and structures in our society is the ultimate goal. Let's take a few examples of domestic ministries. The love and justice of Christ might burden you for the urban plight of the homeless. It's a hot item right now in this area as winter comes on. Or for victims of crime or perpetrators of crime or for the unemployed or hard to employ. Jesus might stir you up to engage yourself in issues of poverty or medical care or hunger or abortion or unwed mothers or runaway kids or pornography or family disintegration or child abuse or divorce or hygiene or education at all levels in the society and in the church or drug abuse and alcoholism or environmental concerns or nuclear proliferation or the peace movement or terrorism or moral abuses in the media or in politics or in business. The Lord might lead you to give yourself to a ministry of promoting prayer or Bible study or personal 
friendship, evangelism. He might cause you to pour out your life into junior boys in Sunday school or GMG or music ministries or visitation of the elderly or moms or the Marie Sandvig Center. And here we have just scratched the surface of the immense variety of ministries, domestic ministries that exist at Bethlehem and as possibilities for you. Now, what's the relationship between all that and frontier missions? Let me try to answer first in relation to the church and second in relation to your individual life. In relation to the church, here's my answer. Domestic ministries are a means and a goal for frontier missions. Here's what I mean. Ralph Winter sat at my kitchen table and he looked out the kitchen window towards the skyline of Minneapolis and he said, you know, John, maybe the best thing you can do for frontier missions is to remake Minneapolis. And I, I put some of that in the star this week. Here's what he meant. It's hard to take the gospel from America to most other cultures and claim to have good news. For example, how are you going to walk into an unreached third world people whose family structure is tightly knit, full of respect, not a broken marriage in the tribe, and tell them, you're from America and you've got good news. You've got a gospel that transforms family life. We are the most rotten family life culture in the world. So, if we're going to have any credibility, we have change at home. At least these people to whom we go have to sense that the church is against it. It's doing something so that we don't have to identify ourselves with the American demise. Well, that's the first way that domestic ministries becomes a means to frontier missions. There are two other ways. Do you regard your job as ministry? Secular job? I hope so. And here's the sense in which I hope you do. It can be ministry in the sense that your goal in your job is to so do your work with such attitudes and such behaviors that you magnify Christ. You illustrate the value of Christ and the characteristics of his personality and if you have any power you can begin to make changes where you work so that the policies and the structures of that corporation or little company or group of people take on a shape that more honors God so you can view your secular job as ministry for the glory of God and if you do, then notice the implication of the relationship to frontier missions. Your job is where you make your money. Therefore, domestic ministries becomes the funding source of frontier missions. And the third way that domestic ministry is a means to frontier missions is that only by winning people through domestic ministries, do you have any recruits in the long run for frontier ministries? Domestic ministries 
is the means by which recruits are gained and recruits are trained. Where would any frontier missionaries be called or trained if there were no domestic ministries going on? So, funds, personnel, and cultural credibility are at least three ways by which domestic ministries are essential means to the end of frontier missions. Now, let me correct a misconception. It would be totally misleading if I said, therefore, domestic ministries is the lowly servant and frontier missions is the queen to which everything is tending. That's wrong. And you can see how wrong it is if you just go back to the definition of frontier missions. Frontier missions is the effort of the church to penetrate an unreached people with the gospel so that a church is started which applies the love and justice of Christ to that culture. And you see what that implies? That implies that the goal of frontier missions is domestic ministries. You see that? The best definition for frontier missions is the effort to transplant domestic ministries from one culture to an unreached culture. So that the church does all the things there that we do here. Foreign missions or frontier missions does not accomplish God's purposes in the world by itself. It only accomplishes them if it can get started in a new culture what's going on in the home culture, namely domestic ministries. The personal evangelism and the social efforts and the kind deeds of that church will transform that society. It won't be the foreign missionaries. They get it started and then boom, it goes. So the goal of missions is domestic ministries. Domestic ministries is the starting point, it is the means, and it is the goal. Now, let me close by applying this to your individual life. We are a church of immense diversity. In one sense, we're very much like each other. We're a homogeneous unit, as the church growth people say. Pretty much all the same color, and even if we're different colors, there are a lot of other things that unite us together. But I want to stress the diversity. Let me give you a list here, for example. I just thought these up. Followers, we are followers and leaders, some of us. Emotional and stoical. Organized and unorganized. Thrifty and lavish. Intelligent and unintelligent. Readers and non-readers. Planners and drifters. Curious and uninterested. Expressive and non-verbal. People-oriented, task-oriented. Contemplative types, activist types. Serious types, humorous types. Dignified, casual, and on and on. The diversity in this room could go. Now add to that this wonderful truth that God usually calls people into ministries where they'll feel at home. Satisfied in their uniqueness. And you see what emerges. An array of domestic ministries that just can't be categorized. Just all over the place. If you're open to God and following Him in your unique hearing of His call. So in all of that ministerial diversity among you, let's go back and just say in closing what the five principles to help us are. Number one, diversity is here to stay. Let's not think it's a transient thing. I think it'll be here in heaven and forever. Second, don't distinguish these differences in terms of good, 
and evil. My ministry, good. Yours, bad. Frontier missions, good. Domestic ministries, bad. Don't even think in those categories. Third, don't despise or condemn each other, but rather respect and affirm those differences. Fourth, be fully persuaded in your own mind. And here's where I said I was going to bring in this issue of what happens when you feel guilty. If you're waffling, oh Lord, I don't know what you want, if you want me to do this or this, if I think this or this, if I should have this or this opinion about that, if my habit should be this or that, if, if you're just waffling back and forth all the time on lots of issues, you're a prime target for guilt when somebody comes along and says, do this, this is the will of God. Unless you're settled, then you feel guilty for not doing it. You haven't been doing it. And what happens when you feel guilty? You defend yourself by criticizing the other person. We all defend the legitimacy of our ministries or non-ministries by criticizing those on the other side. It's bad, bad, bad. And you know what will overcome it? Let every man be fully convinced in his own mind before God. He can relax. You don't have to worry. If we have a big long week on Frontier Missions and you're not called, you relax. And you try to think about how your domestic ministry feeds in instead of getting all bristled and, and defensive. And the same thing with the missionaries. They don't need to throw stones back at the domestic ministers. So, my prayer is that we will do number five here. Everything we do from faith for the honor of Christ with a heart full of thanksgiving for His grace. Now tonight, we're going to be back here at 6, I pray. Right up there are going to sit the sopranos. And right up there are going to sit the altos. And right back here are going to be the tenors and the basses. And they're not all going to sing unison. And because they don't, because they're going to insist on being sopranos, and altos. It's going to be beautiful. I pray together with this family of believers, my brothers and sisters, that you would work into us these five principles from your word to affirm the fact that diversity is here to stay, not to label anybody as evil, not to despise or condemn those who are called a different way or have a different habit to be persuaded deep down in a personal union with you about our own role so that we can be free from guilt, free from defensiveness, free from criticism, and doing everything in honor to you with a heart full of thanksgiving, both tonight at six, all week long and on Thursday, and for the rest of our lives into eternity. And all God's people said, Amen.